Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, actor and restaurateur Danny Trejo. Now, if you don't know his name, you probably know his face. Danny has played the bad guy in more than 300 movies, including Heat and Grindhouse. Oh, and fun fact, last week's guest, Rose McGowan, also starred in Grindhouse. And Danny played the Machete character in everything from Spy Kids to Machete Kills. Oh, and High School Me also thinks it's important to note that he's been in several of Slayer's music videos. And Danny's latest venture is restaurants. In 2016, Danny opened Trejo's Tacos in Los Angeles. And then he opened Trejo's Coffee and Donuts. And he just released his first cookbook, Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. Anthony Bourdain, when he came to eat, he loved the barbacoa bowl. And he could eat, boy, he ate everything. And he said he wouldn't eat anywhere in L.A. but my restaurant. Danny's twist on Mexican food is focusing on healthy options. They serve jackfruit tacos, cauliflower tacos, and Trejos doesn't cook with lard. But if you think vegan tacos aren't authentic... What is authentic? Like, what, you know, what is authentic anything, you know? Ancestral Mexican food is not really what you think it is. I chat with Denise Vallejo, the vegan chef owner of L.A.'s Alchemy Organica, who would like to remind people that the original Mexican food was not covered in melted cheese. And L.A. Taco editor-in-chief and Taco Chronicles associate producer Javier Cabral defends the fancy taco movement. But first, my conversation with Danny Trejo. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to your uh, quarantine interview. Awesome. Danny Trejo has been acting in films and television shows for decades. But as a young man, no one could have predicted that he'd find that kind of success. For about 11 years throughout the 1960s, Danny was in and out of prison for armed robbery and drug charges. And I read in the beginning of the book that you said, I used to rob restaurants. Now I own eight of them. So talk a little <laughs> bit about, you know, your past, your childhood. I had an uncle. My grandma had a, 11 kids altogether. The wow. youngest boy was Gilbert. And so me and him were pretty close to the same age, about six years apart. And by the time you get to the 11th kid, I think you kind of like burned out on kids. And the Gilbert was kind of left to himself and uh, I gravitated towards him. He happened to be a drug addict and an armed robber. I watched all my uncles and they always seemed to be tired from work. And they always seemed to be dressed like, uh, kind of like workers. Khaki pants rolled up with the paint stains and boots and sweaty t-shirts. And Gilbert, for some reason, his pants were always pressed and he always had shiny shoes and uh, he always had like a, a cool kind of jacket and sometimes no shirt. It was just cool. And so everybody kind of left us alone. Gilbert was like my mentor. It was a great life. Yeah. Turned me on to grass. I was about eight years old. Gave me a fix of heroin when he was about when I was about 12. Near the end of his last incarceration at California's San Quentin State Prison, Danny joined a 12-step program. And on Cinco de Mayo in 1968, 
He vowed to get clean and has stayed sober for more than 50 years. And when he got out of prison, he worked as a drug counselor, which is something that he still does today. Just helping people because I realized the only way that I could stay clean and stay out of prison was being of service to other addicts. During his time in prison, Danny became a really good boxer, which ended up being his ticket into Hollywood. I was trying to be an extra because it was extra 50 bucks. I had no idea of becoming an actor. To me, it was just 50 bucks. I was 40 years old. I didn't really care. you know. You know. And uh, I ran into a friend of mine on a movie called Runaway Train that I was in prison with, a guy named Eddie Bunker, who was a writer. And he said, hey, what's up? Are you still boxing? And I said, uh, no, I'm training, but I, uh, I don't box anymore. He said, we need somebody to train one of the actors how to box. And I said, what's it pay? Because they were paying me 50 bucks. He says, 320 a day. And I said, how bad do you want this guy beat up? He goes, no, you got to be real careful, Danny. This actor's really high strung. He might sock you. I said, Eddie, for 350 bucks, give him a stick. I've been beat up for free. <laughs> so anyway, I started training Eric Roberts how to box for a movie called Runaway Train. And the director, Andre Kajalowski, saw that Eric would kind of do what I said. So he hired me. Andre, very soft-spoken. And he had a lot of problems with movie stars. Because movie stars are Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> movies started all think that like everybody's supposed to get him a cappuccino. And so he came up and I never guess he goes, you be in my movie and you fight Eric in my movie. And Danny, you be my friend. Oh, that's so cute. I know. But if you come from a prison background, you don't like people saying you be my friend. You, well, yeah, what does that mean, buddy? You know what I mean? And then he kisses me, kisses me on one cheek, kisses me on the other cheek, and walks away. And I said, Eddie, now listen, I'm going to train the kid for 320 but if I got to kiss that old man, I want more money. <laughs> and he goes, no, no, he's European. I didn't know they kissed. From then on, every movie I walked on, I was making 320 a day. And they would say, hey, Danny, take off your shirt, because I have a big tattoo on my chest. We do a scene, and the, always the director say, Danny, say something very prisony. I go, uh, All right, we'll kill all of you. Oh, yeah, great. You know, where did you study? You know, and uh, <laughs> San Quentin. And, uh, say something prisony. Yeah, uh, you know, like, you know, yeah, the, uh, the first five years of my career, I was inmate number one. Inmate number one, bad guy, cholo, mean Mexican guy, you know. And, and I thought I had a great career going. I didn't know. I was an actor, right? And, and the first time I got interviewed, young lady fresh out of interview school, I think, she said, Danny, don't you feel you're being stereotyped? And I said, as what? And she said, well, you're being typecast as the mean Chicano dude with tattoo. I said, look at me. I got tattoos all over me. And well, you crazy? I am the mean Chicano dude with tattoos. <laughs> I went with what I had. I realized that everybody in the film industry is typecast. Tom Cruise is typecast as a leading man. You, you, under, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm typecast usually as the bad guy. Why? Because I don't look like Tom Cruise. I scare Tom Cruise. There was a survey that came out in February that said that you have more movie deaths than any other actor. It says you have died 65 times on film, which is a new record. Absolutely. <laughs> what is the most ridiculous death from one of those 65 movies? Oh, God. I got 
eaten by a badger <laughs> in in a movie called what was it? Uh, Salt Lake City with my best friend Val Kilmer. God, it's like I remember when I died in Heat. There was a movie called Heat. Robert De Niro shot me. So <clears throat> you don't get no better than that. Danny was born in 1944 in L.A.'s Echo Park neighborhood to Mexican-American parents. He says his mom was an amazing cook, and his dad? Well, his dad didn't care about food at all. We had like a Mexican diet. It's any family that works from check to check. You have great meals like the first of the month, and then by the end of the month, you start making up stuff. I'd ask my mom, Mom, what's this? It's we mix it. You eat it. It's good. We would always joke. Because in the 50s, you know, women didn't work. Basically, housewives, they were married to a house, and the husband came along with it. Me and my mom would always tease my dad about starting a restaurant. And he was like the Mexican Archie Bunker. You know, it's like, we'd start talking, hey, hey, I got a brand new stove right there in that kitchen. You can go cook whatever the hell you want, okay? Literally, it was like an indentured servant or whatever you call it, married to that house and. uh if you look at Mexican, Mexican spells machismo backwards. I mean, it's like stupid, right? Uh, you, men don't cry. You know, God, that one, I hated that one. That's the way I grew up, and that's the way I, I saw women for a long time. And boy, that changed. My agent's a woman, everybody around me, and they're all smarter than me. So Danny and his mom used to joke about having a restaurant. And when he was in his 70s, that joke became a reality. I, I did a favor for this director, a guy named Craig Moss. He had a movie called Badass, No Budget. And on that movie, the producer, a guy named Ash Shaw, saw that I eat good food. I'm a real connoisseur of food. I, I, I don't like fast food. I don't like processed food. And, and so uh, he said, Danny, why don't you open a restaurant? Jokingly. Going back to my mom, I said, Trejo's Tacos, TT. And uh, two movies later, because that turned into a trilogy, two movies later, he brought me a business plan. He says, Danny, I'd just like you to look at this. You know, if you like it, let's, you know, just look. So naturally, me being the brilliant businessman that I am, I gave it to Gloria. And she read it and said, Dan, it's not a bad idea. You know, this is one business plan that they're not asking for 500000 up front and and it's a guarantee. So, I, you know, so let's do it. So we opened up Trejo's Tacos on La Brea. And that became a success. Really, really great, right? And uh, and then uh, we opened up Trejo's Cantina in Hollywood. And now we got eight restaurants. And we're going to Denver. New York wants us. Uh, San Antonio, Texas wants us. Vegas and Hawaii. So Wow, that's amazing. Danny is proud of Trejo's Tacos' success proving that he's not just another celebrity opening a flash-in-the-pan restaurant. Most restaurants die the first year, and everybody keeps asking me, what is your secret? What is your Good food! What are you talking about? Ain't no secret. You know, celebrities always think they can put their name on something and then just go back to Bogalusa, Louisiana, and it'll be okay. But no, it's like you got to be there checking on the food, checking on the staff. I send friends of mine in to like eat, you know, and tell me about the staff. And I've never got a bad report. Everything is fresh. Everything's organic. And we're puppy friendly because I love dogs. Like I mentioned earlier, Danny insisted there be healthy options on his restaurant's menu. There are classic dishes like carnitas and barbacoa. There are not so classic tacos stuffed with chicken tikka or fried chicken. 
But there's also a mushroom asada taco with pepita pesto, verde slaw, and a citrus marinade. The horchata served at Trejo's Tacos is sweetened with dates instead of sugar. Talk about why you wanted it to be a healthy menu. There's a story that I read, you being a single dad and uh, bringing your kids to McDonald's and the epiphany that you had. Well, I didn't. It was really my son, Gilbert, when he was in third grade or so, second grade or something, you know, I was a single dad. And, and, you know, God, I could go to McDonald's and I could read my lines and, and they would be playing in that game room or whatever. And I could study, and and then one day my son just came over and said, "Dad, you're poisoning us." I what? <laughs> yeah, processed food is not good. And I said, "Who told you?" His teacher was like, "Oh God!" So here we go. So now we gotta like, you know, we started trying to eat better. And when we started making the menu, I said, "You know what? Listen, we gotta do this, and and we got a, a, a much better menu." And I work with autistic children. Doctors that work with autistic children say that. They don't do well with gluten. And so I said, well, let's have a gluten-free menu. Tacos are gluten-free. So, And if you come into our restaurants about 4, 5, 6 o'clock, you will see parents in there with, with uh, special needs children. Plus, this is L.A., and Danny recognizes that everyone is either keto, I always say that, keto, <laughs> keto. keto, or gluten-free, or paleo. So when they started creating the menu for Trejos, they started with Danny's mom's recipes the ones that the family collected from her before she passed away. And then the cooks tweaked them to make them healthier. Like lard and stuff like that. We took that out. I got to say, though, I do love me some lard. A lardy tortilla is so good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know. But you know what? Especially when I pass a grammar school and I look at like 10 kids and two of them are overweight. One of them is obese. America's got to change our diet. That's why we have so much diabetes. You know, so many things that are making people sick later in life. And it's like diet is everything. Diet and walking. I'm 76 years old. I can still play a 50-year-old gangster. (laughs) We are going to pause for a brief moment. But when we come back, Danny Trejo's last meal. Danny Trejo has made a career out of playing the villain, the bad guy, the mean dude. He eats podcast hosts like me for breakfast. But what does he want to eat for his last meal? I've thought I've actually thought about this. <laughs> I think I would love some carnitas tacos and some barbacoa tacos and some shrimp nachos with two eggs over easy on top. I think, yeah, that would be my meal. Some hot coffee. Ooh, so would this be breakfast tacos and breakfast nachos? Uh Uh-huh. Our nachos are the best in the world, and I challenge anybody. Best in the world. And I always like to put two eggs over easy on top, and that's breakfast and lunch. So what's the significance of this last meal? What is it about the carnitas and the barbacoa and the shrimp nachos? What does it mean to you? Or is it just truly just a delicious thing? Delicious. They're delicious. Ours are so delicious. Everything's marinated. Everything <laughs> is like, it's just like, wow. But thank God we still deliver. It's funny. Uh, Marilyn Manson called me up and said, hey, we're living on your tacos. I said, cool. 
So tell me what goes on those tacos. If you're having a carnitas or a barbacoa taco, um, start, you know, from the bottom with the tortilla and work your way up. What's on it? Get the tortilla, put the carnitas in it, and from then on it's you. You have tomato, you can have lettuce, you can have cheese, you have guacamole. You know, we have a cauliflower taco that was the number one recipe two years in a row in Los Angeles. Everybody loves it. I I. I loved it. A taco is so versatile. You can do anything in a taco. You can put anything you want. I didn't know a hot dog came in a bun. My grandma used to put them in a tortilla. And I thought that was a hot dog, you know, till somebody gave me a hot dog with mustard and relish. And I thought, well, this is good, but my grandma makes them better. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like you're not a purist because so many people like to say, I only like tacos that have cilantro and onion, you know, the two corn tortillas and the meat, and then that's it. Like, people are kind of snobby, I feel, about, like, lettuce and tomato and cheese and all that. But it sounds like you're up for anything. Hey, you know what? I'm telling you, I've eaten weenie in a taco. You know what I mean? It's like, I put a hot dog in. I don't care. It's like, I love it. It's like, sometimes when you're on the go, just like, here, I'm going to make a taco. And so just put whatever you want in it and go. Do you believe that anything... Wrapped in a tortilla becomes a taco? No, anything anything that's wrapped is a burrito. They want to call them wraps, but really they're burritos. I got in an argument with a lady because this mentions blah, 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 a wrap, bloop, bloop, bloop. And I said, what are you wrapping? Oh, wrapping a tortilla. Oh, that's a burrito. <laughs> no, it's a wrap. <laughs> Mikey. That's what white people call them, wraps. <laughs> <laughs> For his last meal, Danny Trejo wants carnitas and barbacoa tacos, shrimp nachos topped with two over-easy eggs, and a cup of coffee. Carnitas is pork shoulder that is slow braised in lard or oil and then crisped up right before being stuffed inside a tortilla. And barbacoa is slow braised beef, traditionally wrapped in agave leaves and cooked underground until the meat is incredibly tender and falling apart. And if you want a whole episode about nachos, we already have one. Check out Alan Stone's last meal. It is a fan favorite. How do you know? (laughs) People, the the fans have spoken. Fans have spoken. The fans have spoken. Like I mentioned earlier, Danny is serving all kinds of untraditional Mexican food at Trejo's Tacos. Vegan cauliflower tacos with cashew cream, a Mexi falafel taco with kale and tahini. Dishes that some taco purists would turn up their noses at. But Danny is Mexican-American. So is he merely evolving the food of his people? I wanted a couple L.A. taco experts to weigh in because L.A. takes its tacos very seriously. Tacos are the official food of Los Angeles. That is Javier Cabral, who won two James Beard Awards this year as editor-in-chief of L.A. Taco and as associate producer of the Netflix show Taco Chronicles. They are to L.A. what pizza is to New York. You can eat them 24-7 here. They're available to all classes of people, regardless of your income. There's a taco for every mood. I would say anywhere in L.A., you can drive five minutes and you'll find amazing tacos. That's how important and how institutional tacos are to, to L.A. Javier is not a taco purist, but he says there are plenty of people who are quick to criticize what Danny is doing at Trejo's Tacos or the food at L.A.'s Gorilla Tacos a great spot owned by a Mexican-American French-trained chef where a tostada topped with yellowtail sashimi, yuzu, mango, and gooseberries costs $14. I paid about that for an uni tostada there. 
it's interesting, you know, because you have a really split mindset. I would say the larger percentage of people love to fetishize like authenticity. And for them in their heads, a taco is not authentic if it doesn't have just your carne asada, your al pastor, your onions and your cilantro and your salsa, the, the traditional taco concept. I've written about this extensively. Something weird just happens when you slip a, a tortilla under, under really good ingredients. People just get really upset about it. But if you, if you were to take away that tortilla um, and present those same ingredients on the plate, people love it and are willing to pay like more than like than $15 for it. So it's interesting. There is 100% a double standard that exists with quote unquote gourmet tacos. My personal mindset, I'm all up for the evolution of tacos, um, as long as it's not appropriated outside of its cultural basis. Especially now with what's going on in the world and the social justice movement we're experiencing now, I think there's a lot of confusion about what appropriation is. What would you say would be an appropriation of tacos where you wouldn't be on board? We publish this topic a lot on, on LA Taco because it's it's a topic that's always evolving and, and it's not an easy answer. But I think for the most part, if you are white or if you are you know, making the food of another cultural group, and if you just do it with a very authoritative style without really honoring like the roots of that food or without having like humility for it. I think that's the, the biggest difference between being a student of a, of a certain regional food type or culturally appropriating it. There's a big difference in like whether you have an ego about it or, or whether you, know, you kind of admit that, you know, that you're not part of, the, of that, that cultural group and that you're always trying to learn as much as you can. There's a group of people that say, you know, tacos are supposed to be $1.50. And that's it. And if they're more expensive, they're not, quote, authentic. Um, I really liked your article defending the rise of the $5 fancy taco. Can you talk about some of the, the things you mentioned in the article about why it's okay for a taco to cost more and what that money's being used for? Yeah, so this is a really, really loaded topic. The Angelinos are really passionate about their tacos. And in, in their eyes, they see tacos as like being the affordable a buck 50 or a buck 25 tacos that that they grew up their entire life with but really that budget is really limiting in the evolution of a taco you can't forget that tacos can also evolve and there's so many children of immigrants here that grew up on tacos and they and they choose to be chefs and you're going to tell them that you know just because they put some like a nice piece of uni or they put like a nice piece of fried cauliflower or something on a tortilla and you present that and you charge $7 for it, like you're gonna tell me that that's not okay. I think tortillas can be a canvas for a chef's creativity. That can be dismissed by a lot of people as being a, a very elitist. So it's, it's, it's a very tricky topic, but I, I love to support you know, chefs who are willing to get crazy on a tortilla and, and offer some different fillings. Yeah, and, and even the tortilla itself, a lot of tortillas are not very good. And so if you wanna actually use good masa, make them yourself, that costs a little bit more too. Yeah, you know, it's. It, I always make the comparison with bread. I think this morning I bought a loaf of, of, of local sourdough for, I think it was $9, right? But if you were to try to pay that much for tortillas or masa, people will get so upset about it and they'll be like, well, you know, you're, you know, this is like a working class food and you can't charge more than this amount of money. You're making it not affordable anymore. But just as, as there's all these like beautiful heirloom varieties of wheat and the craftsmanship that, that goes into a nice, beautiful, crusty loaf, that same philosophy can be applied to tortillas. There's a, a couple of, uh, of businesses in the U.S. Um, that have started to import beautiful, uh, crazy colored non-GMO corn from Oaxaca, uh, and they support the farmer. And once you start talking about corn, it gets political real quick. But the point is that tortillas are 50% of a taco. 
We have similar debates here in Seattle with pho, which is kind of our food of the city, because people are so used to paying $7 a bowl. And the same when it's $15, people freak out. But it's like they're using local beef. Like there's a difference here. And people just have a hard time with that. If it's a food from somewhere in Southeast Asia or Central America or Mexico, it's supposed to be cheap. But if it's pasta, which is still just flour and water and an egg, like that can be expensive and people are okay paying for that. Yeah, there is a double standard that needs to be addressed with all cultural cuisines from any kind of immigrant population. But, you know, that hopefully, you know, will be more and more removed once you have more food writers from different backgrounds or become producers and they and they start to change that narrative and remove that double standard that exists within a lot of immigrant cuisines. I'm curious, what do you think of what I call suburban mom tacos, kind of those gringo tacos like ground beef, cheddar, uh, shredded lettuce, hard shell? And I know there's a couple of places in L.A. that do that. Um, what do you think of that style? That's a great question. My philosophy on American crunchy tacos has matured. It's easy to hate on these tacos. It's easy to it's easy to dismiss them as quote unquote inauthentic. But I personally think they have a place in time. At, at the end of the day, I was born and raised in the U.S., so I definitely crave them and I definitely uh, can respect them. I like to refer to my one of my mentors, Gustavo Arellano, who wrote the book Taco USA. His argument is that American crunchy tacos are tacos dorados, which are like you know Mexico's ubiquitous crunchy tacos that, that you find them everywhere in Mexico. But, you know, when a taco changes and a taco is authentic to its local region and when the family that started making those tacos in the U.S., which the earliest record is in 1950 in a restaurant in San Bernardino called Meat La Cafe, uh, which was the predecessor to Taco Bell, who's to say that like they just weren't recreating that same taco dorado that they had with their families in Mexico, but just using the local ingredients where you switch out the cotija with cheddar cheese and you switch out carnazada with ground beef because it was more affordable and, and, you know, and it's still delicious. It's all good. It's all good. And, 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 you know, you gotta enjoy all tacos. You gotta enjoy all tacos. It's really not that hard. I too used to mock the suburban mom taco. I was a taco snob. I guess I probably am still a taco snob, but I've been making them in quarantine and the crunchy shell taco. It's very satisfying. The sharp cheddar, the crunchy iceberg, the lettuce, I, my whole life I was told was bad. It's so good in that taco. Do you like a suburban mom taco? I do like a suburban mom taco. It's different. It's like a totally different kind of food, but exactly. I can't knock it. Yeah, it is. You just have to think of it as different. It's not going to be a taqueria style taco. No, <laughs> no. This is Laura, by the way, the producer. <laughs> <laughs> That's producer. Thank you for that supernatural introduction. <laughs> Okay, it is teeny-weeny break o'clock, but when we return, L.A. chef Denise Vallejo says she got a lot of eye rolls and a lot of pushback when she started cooking vegan Mexican food until she learned that it's a lot closer to how her Mexican ancestors actually ate. We'll be right back. Several years ago, L.A. chef Denise Vallejo went vegan. The straw that broke the camel's back was seeing uh, the deterioration of the health of some of my family members. One of my aunts had gotten diagnosed with cancer. Around that same time, my dad was recovering from a stroke. The result of, you know, just eating a lot of meat and just bad diets, that kind of just made me shift over to plant-based. 
And how did the people in your life react, uh, specifically the Chicana Latina people in your life? What were they telling you about eating vegan and eating vegan Mexican food? Oh, it's always like, that's not real. That's not authentic. You know, I would receive a lot of uh, backlash from some of my friends that were like, it's like you're giving up your Mexicanidad, you know, and I'm just like, wait a minute. That kind of made me feel like I needed to just dig in a little deeper. And around that time is when I just started to, I guess, get more in touch with like the indigenous background, the indigenous cultures in Mexico. And I started to see that most of the indigenous foods were were plant-based. Denise is now the chef owner of LA's Alchemy Organica. And before COVID, she did a variety of pop-ups, casual, approachable vegan food like tacos and fine dining dinners that had mystical themes. But most of her food is linked to indigenous Mexican food that she discovered is very different from the cheese-covered enchiladas so many Americans love. Wheat, cheese, sugar, pork... All of these ingredients were introduced after the Spanish conquest of Mexico in 1519. This just blew my mind. You know, the foods that so many people think of as Mexican, like all this melty cheese and flour tortillas and, you know, carnitas (laughs) and al pastor. And this is all post-Spanish invasion. Yeah, absolutely. So prior to that, our indigenous uh, relatives would be eating maybe bugs, if anything. Beans, there's corn, there's squash. Chilies, obviously, chilies are are big in, in our salsas and just about everything, our moles, amaranth. You know, these are like, well, what we consider superfoods now. These are the things that are popular in, at your Whole Foods or all your health food stores, you know, cacao and spirulina, chia seeds, things like that. These are like the building blocks of the protein that we would eat in those times. And they did raise like turkey and things like that, but definitely not pork, you know, not beef and wheat wasn't even there. So these ideas of what Mexican, authentic Mexican is, is definitely post-invasion. You know, you've got the cheese and from the Mennonites that came in, the wheat flour, that was like the main thing that they wanted to kind of wipe out all the use of corn. Corn was just too native. It was seen as lower class. So the offering was definitely going to be wheat after that. Amaranth was outlawed. Why? Because it was used during a lot of native rituals. When the Spanish came to try to convert all our people, Catholicism, and you know, they had to get rid of those things too. Anything that was used during these rituals had to be basically outlawed. Denise says it's empowering to use ingredients like amaranth in her cooking today. And she believes that people are getting sick from eating too many colonial foods. I think that's why it's really important to start remembering a lot of these ancient foods. I really think there's a power in how it unlocks DNA. I kind of That's a thing that I like to say a lot about it, uh, activating DNA. It's sort of like a spirit or a memory in that food and how it will connect with your cells. In research with nutrition, you really are what you eat. Food is creating the cells in your body. So just imagine if you were born to eat, you know, corn, you were born in a region that grows a specific thing and you consume it, then you're eating what you're supposed to eat. So when you have multiple generations down the line that have been removed from eating those kind of foods, and then it's sort of like you start eating these foods again and 
there's something about a, a memory there or something becomes unlocked, at least. I think so. I kind of feel that. I, I think the more that I started eating these foods, I started feeling more like a, a Nahuatl princess or something. I don't know. I just really felt more alive and it just feels right to eat these foods. I really love that. I heard someone say recently, like when you're cooking, if you're wondering what goes together, cook things where the plants grow near each other, like that's how it naturally works. And it's kind of the same as saying, eat things that yeah. grow near where you're from because they're going to be good for you. You were born there for a reason. You know, you can grow these three things together. You can grow the beans and the corn and the squash and they literally support each other. They create the perfect home to grow onto each other. They tangle into each other and an actual support system in the farm. They're just meant to go together. Okay, so what does she cook? I guess my most like indigenous dish would be the huarache. I wanted to make it as native as possible. You know, we would hand press our masa, the organic masa we get from Colonel Truth, and make it into that long uh, shape like a sole, you know. And we would spread the beans on there and a potato with poblano peppers. And then we'll do a cactus salad on top of that. So I just want to like introduce just a lot of the younger folks that are living in this neighborhood. I don't know how often they're eating cactus, you know serve salads and put like puffed amaranth in there, things like that. When you first started out and you first went vegan, there were a lot of people in your circle, in your community that were criticizing you that, you know, you were going against tradition. Now that you've had this business and you're making this food, have they changed their minds? Oh, yeah. It's so funny. One of the more traumatic uh, moments that I had with one of my my friends that criticized me, uh, <laughs> she she would just get upset. Uh, about anything that I was making. And then like, I think like five years down the down the road, uh, she walked into one of the vegan restaurants that I was working at. And I'm like, oh, look who's vegan now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I see that a lot. I, I just don't even get upset about it. I'm just like, yeah, you'll come around to it. You know, at least you'll understand the history of it. Back to Danny. At Trejo's Tacos, he is committed to hiring people who need a second chance. If you've been to prison, if you have a bunch of tattoos, he believes you still deserve to have a job. A lot of times, people you give a, a second chance to are very, very loyal. And they know that their chances are slim because whatever background they have, whatever, you know, and, and they cherish what they have. You know, I mean, every day I wake up, I cherish the day. You know, I wake up in a miracle. And I talked to God a couple of days ago and I asked him, how am I doing? He goes, well, you're almost out of hell. Keep it up. You know, and so I enjoy it. So everything good that has happened to me has happened as a direct result of helping someone else. You're the best, Danny Trejo. You're the nicest guy. <laughs> hey, where are you from? Where are you from? I live in Seattle. When you're in Los Angeles, dinner on me at Trejo's Cantina. And that was Danny Trejo's last meal. So you did the dream. You opened Trejo's Tacos, the dream you had with your mother. Uh, what do you think that she would say if she was here to see your restaurants oh, and what you She's, created? You know what? She's probably slapping my dad. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you're in L.A., visit Trejo's Tacos and Trejo's Coffee and Donuts. There are several locations. And pick up his new, big, beautiful cookbook. It's called Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. Thanks to Javier Cabral. He is editor-in-chief of L.A. Taco, associate producer of the Netflix show Taco Chronicles. And his cookbook is called Oaxaca, 
home cooking from the heart of Mexico. And I wish I could have done a whole bunch more with Javier because he has such an interesting story. So he got his start in food writing when he was just a teenager. He actually wrote a letter to the late, great LA food writer, Jonathan Gold, asking him, how did you become a food writer? I don't see that there are any majors in college like this. So Jonathan Gold took him under his wing, uh, helped him get his first job, and now he makes his money. He makes his entire living eating, writing, talking about tacos. Through my passion for tacos, it's really catapulted my life. Tacos, it's kind of cheesy, but they are a way of life for me. Tacos definitely have treated me really, really nice. Thanks to Denise Vallejo, chef owner of LA's Alchemy Organica. If you follow Alchemy Organica on Instagram, you can find her and where she's serving her food these days. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, as usual, theme music by Prom Queen. And if you want a different take on Mexican food, make sure and listen to last week's episode with Rose McGowan, where we go oh so deep into Taco Bell. Two bean burritos, no onions, add sour cream, one hard shell taco, and a medium Pepsi. Thank you. Make sure you're following along on Instagram, your last meal podcast. That's where you can send me a message. I try to always reply. And if you're feeling nice today, which I know you are, leave us a review or at least tap five stars wherever you're listening to this podcast. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. And then it's crisp. And then it's crisp. I know I've always had a hard time with that word. Crisp. 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 I can't say sixth. 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 Crisp. I feel like I really sixth. have to like pull it out of my mouth. I'm going to need you to crisp every sixth <laughs> one. If you could. Every sixth carnita, I'm going to need crisped.